Checking it again with State Representative Jackie Chan of Quincy for our first Tacky Talk of February 2023. How are you, Tacky? Doing great, Joe. Yeah, it's uh, February 1st and a nice nippy day. As you can see here, I'm back in my office in the State House. I see that. So, yeah, you've got your suit and tie on and your hair is combed. <laughs> oh, it's, it's all business today. Oh, absolutely. I have to look presentable to my co-workers, although most of you have been watching me know that uh, that you all know better how I really look in a day. Yeah, we like the casual tacky, but uh, but we understand, you know, business is business. Uh, speaking of business, you were all business at the mayor's uh, state of the city address yesterday. Yeah, as uh, part of the job, I suppose, is, uh, you know, we attend all the various uh, city um, gatherings, including the state of the city address and, uh, you know, the mayor. Um, generally lays out whatever he wants to lay out uh, at the state of the city, no different from any mayor. And it was also great to see uh, Governor uh, Maura Healy uh, come to visit our city as part of the um, listening on the governor's, I'm sorry, listening on the mayor's agenda. And uh, given the timing of it, which is actually very good, um, given the timing of uh, Mayor Coke's state of the city actually create opportunity for uh, Governor Healy to come. Uh, it's always good not to have a state of the city addresses backed up against each other uh, around the state. We forget that there are a lot of cities in Qu in Massachusetts, including Quincy being one of the largest cities, um, and having it timed where it did to give the governor a chance to try to get many state of the city addresses uh, all over the Commonwealth. So, you know, it was wonderful to see her there. And, um, you know, it's it's good timing. I thought it was great timing by the city to put it there so she, her attendance was was able to be had. Yeah, and uh, uh, he called out uh, yourself and the entire Quincy delegation as well for their support. So uh, congratulations on that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're a good partner uh, to the city. People tend to forget that the city budget, um, about uh, 30 plus percent and sometimes more depending on the year, actually is a direct local aid and chapter 70 funds. And, you know, we bring home millions and millions of dollars of grant funding and um, program funding and direct earmarks. and you know, we're a big supporter of the various um, economic development things like district improvement funding and other programs that the city asks for our support when those put those applications in. And, you know, if there's a further conversation on things like projects in the city where the state's doing some work, whether infrastructure or building or looking for uh, places to lease a building or, or, or a floor or whatever, they need office space. I mean, obviously, the city likes to uh, be engaged on any kind of extra revenue generation. You know, we're very aware of that. So, you know, it, it's uh, the nature of Quincy and uh, so much state components to it, whether it be, you know, MBTA, the expressway, the MWRA, the beaches, the parking ways, uh, the, uh, the MBTA training, police training center. Um, obviously, you guys know about the pumping state, sewage pumping stations. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, state components to, to um, Quincy. Uh, the, the delegation is quite involved in. Sure. Um, sports betting is now legal in Massachusetts, Jackie. Yes, I made a trip to Plain Ridge Racecourse yesterday after the state of mayor's address. So I did a quick dash out uh, of uh, the state of the city address uh, to get to Plain Ridge uh, because I had to be there by 12. I got there at 1230. So, you know, didn't quite get there on time. Um, but uh, it's great to see uh, sports betting actually come forward after so many years of discussion on this. And given the fact that we had already authorized uh, casino gambling, uh, the leap to sports betting isn't a huge regulatory leap. Uh, there's plenty of other states where regulators can use as a baseline 
example of how to properly regulate. And of course, we can always add more than other states, but you know, this is not one of those situations where like we're first in line to do it. And that's not a bad thing I tell folks. Being first all the time isn't always the best. Sometimes it's good to see other states go first and then learn the lessons from them. Any estimate on the revenue and what that might be used for from, from sports betting? Um, I'm not exactly clear how much revenue is going to come in because when we did marijuana and, and casinos, uh, they went well above estimates. I was very surprised marijuana, about how much above estimates they it went to. I mean, a lot of the funds from sports bettings will be pre-allocated again to our essential services and education, transportation and healthcare. Um, you know, those are the priority allocations, very similar to the casino gambling allocations. Um, and well, marijuana is a little bit different because there's a lot of healthcare issues associated with it, where it goes into. But I mean, it, it mimics a lot of the existing casino gaming stuff. Um, so um, what we normally do in the budget is that we kind of look at how much those money is in, in those different funds and we kind of readjust the budget for those different allocations and we kind of move forward. So uh, we do that largely because we like to keep it off budget uh, right now. Uh, because we don't know. Uh, you can't budget where we don't have a track history on. Casino gaming, you know, given the fact there is a sufficient track record despite 2020 shutdown, uh, you know, at least we have the ability to kind of like better guesstimate, so to speak, the revenue coming in and build into the base budget. Yeah. Um, mobile sports betting is coming up, I guess, in March sometime. I know you have a little more concern about that when it comes to security. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remind folks that if you have money that's not sitting in a bank account, you know, you definitely should consider moving that money in case a hacker gets it and grabs it. There's uh, no guarantees that the uh, mobile entity, no matter what it is uh, you're using, that isn't a bank, uh, like a FDIC insured bank, uh, is able to uh, provide you recovery for those funds. And you know, same thing with sports betting. Uh, there, it's, it, the reality is they're soft targets for terrorists and criminals, um, and, and they're going to just go after it. Again, if the FTX lesson for Bitcoin uh, not Bitcoin, whatever that coin they used, FTX coins, and they were using it basically as like a bank to tell you get interest rates back, but there's no FTC insurance in case of fraud. You know, well, it's only $250,000 coverage. I mean, right now people are still uh, trying to figure out how to get recovery of those lost uh, cryptocurrencies. So, you know, there's another lesson for you regarding, you know, uh, putting your money in places that you know are, are truly safe, or at least truly insured. Um, so, you know, I know people, uh, you know, always looking to you know, make a couple extra dollars, but I think the security of your money is uh, much more paramount uh, than trying to make extra money off your money. I know there was some concern that now that there's sports betting, that might take some of the revenue away from the lottery. Um, but uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's a valid concern? Well, people forget I was around when Speaker Finneran put a report uh, that claimed that the casinos would rip apart the lottery uh, by massive numbers. Instead, the lottery has had record number growth despite the casinos being here. And the only places that uh, no longer exist is Rainham Greyhound uh, Dog Park. They were among the top five lottery sellers in the state. Hmm. And uh, the lottery is ambiguous, as you all know. It's it's inescapable uh, in the denser urban areas for better or for worse. That's a longer policy argument about a different type of aggressive tax on social, certain socioeconomic sectors. 
But that being said, I don't see a major impact on sports betting. I, I'm a firm believer that people that wager like to wager on certain things. I do not believe in cross-pollinating wagering. I do that even people with addictions to wagering tend to stay within their lane on what they like to wager. I think it is a falsehood that people say that uh, gambling is just one monolithic type of entity. Uh, people, uh, if you actually... Like I've been in enough gaming facilities in my life at this point to observe people, how people play. And uh, people are religious about going to a specific slot machine. People have a certain preference regarding a table game. People love Kino or hate Kino. Uh, I don't like Kino at all. I'd rather play a lottery game. And even then, I don't really like to play a lottery game. But you would see people playing their scratchies. Now I'm dating myself, right? I'm a real Boston guy. You know, but I mean, they're playing the instant games. And uh, you notice that people pay uh, mostly on certain amounts and maybe they'll buy a, you know, the mega $50 ticket every so often, but, you know, they see more value in buying, you know, $10, $5 tickets, right? So people are very, um, you know, habitual how to do it. It's like the daily numbers game. That, that game shouldn't exist, but it has a sufficient uh, foot traffic, for lack of a better term, of committed people forever who are willing to, uh, you know, put down a buck to try to get, you know, a couple of thousand instead of hundreds of millions. You know, there's value there. The state the treasurer, you know, during the consensus hearing, you know, did talk about the, the fact that while um, uh, the big numbers, mega jackpot games have definitely, you know, boosted the lottery. Uh, you know, some of the games, uh, you know, they were suffering economic depression, you know, like Kino because the restaurants were closed, you know, have been making some comeback. Uh, but, you know, Insta games have not had the same uh, flow as it had in the past. And Insta games still represent like 60% of all sales. Uh, again, the $50 ticket we talked about uh, the other other podcast, it was like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. So, you know, the lottery is still, you know, trying to, you know, get their advertising up. They're going to try to promote themselves. Uh, but, I mean, people are betting on the Celtics are not going to grab an instant ticket. I mean, they were never grabbing an instant ticket to begin with. Yeah, uh, people have their own even numbers, same numbers that they play out for a lifetime, you know, uh, children's birthdays or anniversaries or or important dates in their lives. And, and they never stray from that. Absolutely. I think we've seen more, a few news stories on a, on a national level about people winning big uh, and their logic behind it. And uh, it's something that's closer to them and they feel that uh, brings them good luck. I mean, more power to you. Uh, I have... Uh, it's all random, random numbers anyway. So there's no reason why your random number isn't as good as someone else's. Hmm. But I, I truly don't believe there's a huge lottery impact as a of sports betting. Again, the casinos have not dinged up the 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 lottery, and all mobile sports betting does is puts a direct competition against the brick and mortar casinos, sports bet books. And uh, it actually brings greater competition regionally against, you know, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and, you know, all the other parts of the country uh, that, uh, you know, have sports books uh, on or near our borders. Right. Well, it is uh, February now, and uh, any movement on Beacon Hill in terms of uh, the new session, in terms of committee assignments, uh, rules, things of that nature? Uh, well, actually, we're in debate today to do rules debate. So... I am here today. We have a Democratic caucus at 12. It's right now 11.25. And uh, expect the Democratic caucus will talk about uh, the uh, proposal of House rules, which operate the House, and proposed joint rules, which be sent to the Senate for their consideration and amendment, because that's what's going to happen. 
regarding the joint operation of committees and joint operation of, of bill movement between the two branches. Uh, the rule structure, uh, obviously very important uh, to everyone because you know this is the playbook. We know how to run the place. Uh, and it's imperative for every legislator, while we are not expected to memory every single line of the rules, uh, it is imperative to know how the rules work. And uh, I've been around for a while, even back in my Senate days, I had to learn how the Senate rules worked, even though you know I didn't memorize every single line. It was, it was still very important as a staff person to understand mm -hmm. what was really going on in the floor. Yeah. And new elected is going to have to learn by observation because you can read this thing to your blue in the face, but until you see it in action, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it was like civil procedure in law school. I mean, reading, you know, reading all these books on how to do civil procedure was wonderful, but I had no clue how this stuff worked in real life until I actually had to do some courtroom observation and so I'd be like, oh, okay, this starts to make sense. So, you know, it's a lot like that with the rules debate. And once rules are set up, they'll, they'll, uh, the committees are part of the rules debate, and then we're able to move forward on, on, uh, on the committee assignments. And I'm aware that the speaker is still seeing uh, House members regarding their requests uh, as they try to work through um, what's the best, you know, situation. The House rules, uh, what's the joint rules proposal to the Senate is to eliminate the committee on exports. Uh, create uh, a new committee by bifurcating a natural resources and agriculture to create natural resources committee and agricultural committee. And uh, the House is looking to mimic uh, the Senate in terms of creating an intergovernmental committee as well, um, intergovernmental affairs. Uh, it's it, that agency uh, where that committee would be more engaged regarding uh, in, uh, with the federal delegation. Um, they did some renaming, not, not a big deal. I mean, you know, they did some renaming of a couple committees, but this is basically the same. So, but that's a proposal that's being sent to the, the Senate. Um, we stuck in we did the, the we stuck in the House rules, the emergency rules uh, that we've been operating during COVID. Um, we decided it's a, a little wise if we just put them in there, so we don't have to like make new rules. Mm -hmm. God forbid we have another emergency, but it doesn't have to be a pandemic. It could be, God forbid, a terrorist emergency, for example. People remember 9-11. Uh, we had no rules for 9-11. We just came in the next day and hoped for the best uh, because I did come to work the next day after 9-11 to the Senate, as well as convene an informal session and uh, hope nothing bad happened. Um, so leaving the emergency rules, uh, you know, in place, uh, you know, not necessarily just for um, a pandemic situation, but, you know, Lord forbid we have a Boston bombing again or a, or a um, you know, 9-11 circumstance. I mean, those aren't that far from my memory still. And the, you know, the legislature is still crucial on that. And the ability to, to do remote just in case is not awful idea. Yeah, those, that option didn't exist during those those events that you just talked about. Um, so to have to have that option, um, you know, why not use it? Yeah, the technology is here now. Uh, even during the bombing event, uh, we didn't have that technology really no. available upstairs. Uh, now we do. It was only 10 years ago. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, it has been 10 years ago. Yeah. So yeah, no, we didn't have those technologies available, and you know now we do. And uh, I suspect we need some more Microsoft um, 360 uh, licenses. Uh, they also are required that all hearings are hybrid. Oh. The, chair, the chairs are now required to come to the state house uh, to do uh, hearings in person, which is fine. I, I prefer to be hearings in person anyway. But somehow set up a hybrid system in the hearing rooms. The hearing rooms already set up with cameras and whatnot. The problem is that. Uh, whether or not bandwidth regarding Microsoft 360 uh, to allow multiple hearings going at once. We have, we technically have uh, 
four small hearing rooms. Uh, we have one guard auditorium, big hearing room. We have a couple of uh, what we could overflow hearing rooms, room mm -hmm. 28, as well as the Senate President controls um, a hearing room on the second floor and her wing. And then there's also the Senate President controls a, um, a reception type room that can be converted to a hearing room as well. So, you know, in theory, um, we could have eight hearings going off at once in the state house in a single day. Uh, generally, we do four, but um, there is the capacity of expansion and the personnel technology to try to do a full boat day and potentially do a formal session the same day and both branches could bring up to 10, uh, 10 rooms in action at one time. So, so Anybody yeah. Anybody that has kids with multiple devices knows that can be a, a problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, I uh, people may realize I like to get my stuff done earlier than later, should I remain a chair? I, would, I don't like dangling stuff deep into the fall, um, but also depends on my Senate partner. I don't know who is going to be my Senate kind of part as a chair uh that is a, still a mystery to me as the fact that i'm still not uh sure what my assignments are um i do not to take any for granted nor do i have an interest in reading the speaker's mind um so uh you know i'm waiting it out like anybody else despite being the quincy guy so don't don't uh, you all think that just coming from the same district as the speaker gives you kind of weird special uh, insight uh about what's going on in his mind so i don't want to say her and ask her to guess yeah, no, he has a process and he'll stick to it, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, the administration has put together a uh, supplemental spending bill, bond bill. Um, have you had a chance to review that at all, Tacky? Not really, but it's not unusual. The, on, on the heels of the uh, governor's first budget, every governor, uh, well, even though it's her first budget, but every governor has had submitted supplemental bills to pay bills that's occurred last fall. So, um, you know, we are still kind of running ahead of revenues, uh, creates an opportunity uh, against projection of revenues. It gives us a chance to, you know, pay off some bills. And also, I remind folks, uh, the governor can't move money between accounts without our permission. So if she wants to move money between accounts because of surplus of certain accounts or try to from deficits and other accounts uh, in the administration, she needs to approve the legislature. So uh, some of this stuff is always going to be money transfers. It's not always new cash. Uh, and uh, th that's what the press doesn't do a great job at. We talk about stuff about the budgets. It gives a false impression that it's all cash. That's new. It's money being moved around. Sometimes we get settlements uh, in terms of big AG cases. Uh, that comes to us. It's our responsibility the legislature to, to allocate whether it be going to a trust fund or expenditure or authorizing um, redistribution to uh, people in the Commonwealth that was adversely affected um, in those cases. Um, so, I mean, I have a chance to look at it, but I suspect it's a lot of, um, of mundane things like collective bargaining agreement approvals, for example. People forget, you know, collective bargaining at our level, you know, uh, has the governor's contractual signature, but the legislature just does approve the funds. It's a great point. Um, you know, a key question um, reporters should ask is, where is that money coming from? Because that'll, that'll, you know, pull the veil away and, and, and actually reveal where the funds are coming from. Absolutely. I mean, you're all welcome to obviously look online on all the bills that we have out there. Uh, and, you know, some are straight up new cash, but mm -hmm. it's not always the case. And uh, you do this long enough, you read these bills long enough, you kind of start to decipher how it works. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this far too long, as I've said multiple times. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I said that we change names. I mean, 
bill paying uh, budgets were referred to as deficiency budgets, not supplemental budgets. Oh, interesting. Because okay. it was paying bills, it's the deficiency that we're paying for. So like slow snow removal is a classic example I use all the time because it's the one that is most most always unpredictable. And we have Snowzilla, like we did back in 15, you know, obviously the snow budget was very different from even last year, which was actually a fairly mild winter regarding snow. And this year, while there was a lot of ice going on, has been so far uh, pretty quiet, although February tends to be a snowy month in Massachusetts. So, uh, you know, I always, always use that as my favorite example of unpredictable costs. We generally uh, will hold back some money um, or, you know, you know, somewhere in the budget, yeah. uh, but also see where we are in real life revenues uh, regarding um uh, running ahead of uh, projection. And if that's the case, you know, obviously we have a little extra money to pay deficiency. Uh, you know, and we also have the rainy day fund. People forget that we have the rainy day fund. And as I pointed out earlier, you have the trust funds from the gambling facilities include transportation as one of the items uh, that can be um, transferred into deficiency spending. Yeah. Um, although I know you're not uh, anticipating using the millionaire's tax revenue because this is the first year, so you don't know what it's going to be, right? Yeah, every analyst has a different impact regarding the revenue. I know you saw the advertising, you know, billion dollars, this and that, but, you know, there's advertising what people think on a projection that was made five years ago versus, you know, real life situation we're living in today. And, you know, as I said before, there's always ways of folks trying to figure out how to manage um, real estate and other transactions. One of my friends, because lawyers like to talk, one of my friends pointed out to me that, you know, moving your main home into a trust is not a bad idea because that's a physical entity. And uh, if you have a lot of high personal income, you're sitting on a lot of cash at home or you have other assets, you know, you, you bifurcate your, um, you can talk to your estate planner and, and attorney and accountant, you know, maybe bifurcating your property assets into a trust as a separate entity, but they separate entities taxed separately, which is actually work for you um, or your accountant is the case maybe, so it costs you a bit of money. Um, you know, is possibly a way of trying to make sure you pay your taxes, but also, you know, try to avoid the million dollar threshold. Again, say over and over again, talk to your accountant, talk to your uh, state planner, talk to your attorney, and, uh, you know, come up with the best plan that works for you regarding how to handle your tax. Yeah, that's, and it's all legal, by the way. We're, we're not advocating anything that's illegal here, certainly. <laughs> well, they've been doing this process even before the millionaire's tax, I promise you, uh, even on a 5% flat tax, if you bifurcate your entities, you have different deductibles. Speaking of money, um, did you read that the uh, Secretary of State is not going to accept a pay raise? So the question I had is, what happens to that extra money? Does that just go back into the general fund? Yeah, it stays in the general fund. Um, okay. I mean, every custody officer can decide how they want to manage it. Uh, obviously, uh, our pay well, their pay in particular, more than mine, is tied to actual wages uh, in the in this country over eight quarters of the Department of Labor. So uh, you've seen all about this in the news. Uh, you know, wage growth is not keeping up with inflation. Many employers, especially uh, at more the Main Street level, has been playing a premium dollar to get help. And uh, since our pay is tied to the economy, uh, more so for the, the country officers because they're tied to actual wage growth. And you saw in the Boston Globe that they have monstrous 20% increase, uh, which occurs every two years. So it's very unusual. Uh, and I do not have to see this situation again for another perhaps 40 years. Uh, mm -hmm. 
they got a 1970s style inflationary period. So this was a one-time bump in the road. Uh, and uh, again, it goes the other direction. If there's wage decreasing, your our pay goes down. I was here with three pay cuts because the medium household income went down in Massachusetts. So it took well, actually a zero percent as a pay cut, but in 11, uh, 2011, 2013 were negatives, and you know 2015 was a zero. So yes, it can happen. Negative wage growth can actually happen as well as negative medium household income. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean you know. My 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 ability to get paid is tied to your ability to get paid. It's uh, it's one of these things people don't quite make that correlation to. And I'm locked in for two years. There's no uh, pay adjustments um, that you could ask for an employer or if your business does really well and you feel like giving up bonuses, you know, which I think is a wonderful thing for employees to do to share the wealth. Um, but no, that doesn't work in my world. <laughs> well, you wanted to be a public servant, Taggy, and <laughs> doing it a long time too. So uh, you know, the, you know the score. <laughs> no, and I don't complain. I do just fine. I mean, um, you know, given my lifestyle, my current circumstances at the house, at the house, it works. Um, obviously, I would say if there's a major lifestyle change, there's a reevaluation, and maybe this job is you know, not going to make the cut, depending on my responsibilities. And it's no different from anyone else making these decisions. So, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that I'm in the circumstance where I feel okay. And uh, those who know me knows I've been in public service a long time and I spent most of my 20s and 30s not making a whole lot of money. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm always very grateful to have a job, period. And at the same time, uh, you know, I'm pretty cheap. <laughs> As people have figured out. <laughs> I mean, I'm wearing a suit. We call it frugal here in New England. <laughs> I got a 10-year suit on and a shirt that's almost 15 years old. So, you know, it's still holding these things together by uh, stitches and duct tape, I suppose, at some point. We look at my jacket. <laughs> good, right. good incentive to maintain your, your weight, right? <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about that too. It's actually cheaper uh, to lose weight than it is to buy new clothes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh, hey, want to talk politics a little bit? There's been uh, upset in the Republican Party in Massachusetts. Oh, I love talking politics, you know, no matter what level of government, whether it be a local, state, or uh, federal. And sometimes we don't even mind talking about what's going on that's far, far from home. So, yes. yeah, the uh, Jill Lyons, uh, to put in context for you all, uh, is actually part of my class in 2010, 2011, swearing in of 2011 with him, uh, the newly elected representative from Andover. So Jim Lyons was in my class. No. He got defeated by Trump win, uh, well, five years ago now. Uh, Trump beat him uh, in, uh, up there in Andover. So, uh, you know, he became the Republican State Committee uh, chair shortly after. And uh, for those who are aware, the Republican State Committee is composed of 80 members, 40 men, 40 women, uh, two uh, persons, one woman, one man from each senatorial district. There's 40 senators hence 80 members of the Republican State Committee. And uh, to achieve um, the Republican State Committee chair, you obviously have to win majority, which, you know, not complicated, 41 votes out of 80 uh, to do so. And uh, th they've always been very tight races. I mean, if you want to bring uh, Kirsten Hughes back on, uh, our good friend that's now in uh, the BMC, uh, uh, Boston Municipal Court, is a clerk and, uh, you know, for, for, from Ward 5, City committee woman, uh, sorry, city uh, councilwoman, as well as um, Republican State Committee chair. It's a brutal job to manage a political party. I, I 
do not envy folks. That being said, um, they had the most dismal showing here uh, since Mitt Romney tried to uh, take out the legislature where they had a 50% loss rate in the House uh, when it went from like 36 to like 16 that year when Mitt Romney ran a bunch of folks in the midterm election for midterm in the sense the governor's midterm. Um, and now this past election, they've dipped from 32 to what we believe will be 25. I'm not clear what's going on to lending near receipt. Um, um, I'm getting some rumors, but I'm not clear exactly what's happening. So we have one outstanding seat, but I mean, we, we believe they're going to go from, from basically 32 to, to 25 uh, and no gains in the Senate. Uh, they had hopes for one Senate seat pickup and that did not happen. Also, they remained three out of 40 in the Senate, wow. the 25 out of 160 in the House. Uh, did no traction on any constitutional officer, lost uh, Sheriff Hodgkins, which is a basically part of the foundation of the sheriff's office in Bristol County, lost by a small margin there. Um, you know, and he he was why I consider a very safe Republican seat. Uh, so, you know, it, it's hard to, uh, you know, as leader of a party, it's hard for you to justify continuation and job when you just took a drubbing this election cycle and she made no headways the election cycle prior and uh, he's getting paid and uh, there is some looming um, uh, ethics uh, slash campaign finance issues uh, with him that's pending in the ag's office regarding uh, uh, hiding moving money to candidates i would just leave it at that and um, there's been some questions within the state committee uh, that we want some audits regarding how he's been spending uh, donor money uh, that's done to the state well, state Republican committee. I'm aware that there are Republican state members asking for an audit, which he has resisted. And he also, by <laughs> and my Republican friends also tell me that he did not obey his own bylaws regarding operation of the committee. Uh, he was trying to push through votes uh, without reaching a quorum. And those there who work in any kind of parliamentary level, whether it be school committee, city council, state, federal, and even on boards of directors of businesses and not-for-profits, a quorum is, uh, needs to be achieved before you can make any decisions and just try mm -hmm. to push those through. Still though, I mean, he lost by, uh, um, you know, it was still actually a pretty good margin, actually, 40, was it 43 to, was the number 43 to 47? It was uh, 34 to 37. Yeah, 34, so that's, that's, that's uh, okay, some people didn't show up. So that's still a pretty tight win. The tight loss, tight win, depending, you know, Amy uh, got a tight win and Jim got a tight loss. So, again, there is reflection of the Republican state committee is still strongly divided uh, among themselves about the direction of the Republican Party. Yeah, uh, and it kind of reflects the, the National Party, too. It has. And uh, and people ask why this has happened. It's because there's a declining enrollment of uh, both uh, Republicans. Of course, Democrat had a spike. Uh, the last four years, but it's declining Roman in, in that party uh, and it's a declining interest in people and participation of, of political parties, whether it be on the municipal or state level, uh, to want to uh, engage in trying to make change at that level. Uh, as people leave the party in both political parties, uh, the remaining group dictates how things go. And then people complain about the two political parties, but do not want to participate in changing. And this is not a new story, folks. You've heard this before from other people. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if it leads to the um, kind of mainstreaming of a third party. Right now, I think a third party candidate has to uh, meet some special requirements to get on the ballot. I wonder if that will change. 
Well, they get more time to get decisions about it. Obviously, Tim Cahill is our most recent local person that did that. When he ran for governor, now you have Deval Patrick and, and Charlie Baker are doing Deval Patrick's second term. That was 2010, actually. I, I was wow. actually uh, in the midst of the insanity of those elections when I was trying to win my own seat uh, for the first time. Uh, but I mean, to achieve a political party status, if I remember correctly, you have to get at least 2% of the vote on a statewide candidate right. um, to, to qualify. And I think there are still some uh, smaller parties that have done that in the past, including the Libertarian Party. It's literally why they run in states. I mean, some of these smaller parties run for the exclusive purpose uh, in various states just to maintain their uh, political party status because you're not a political party. You can't get a there's all kinds of ramifications on 50C4 or political party status and all this other stuff. So it's, you know, there's a lot of legalese that's, that's not, um, has to be done in every state regarding political party uh, maintenance as well as keeping your campaign accounts and so forth. Right. So um, I, I think people like oversimplify, oh, they just need to spoil things. It's a little more involved than just that. They try to keep their party interest uh, alive uh, by maintaining a party status. Uh, it's not always just like being a spoiler. Um, right, right. It's a little more involved. So, but I, I mean, again, I, I'm doubtful that uh, a third political party can arise. I think the sufficient political spectrum, as we all see in what political parties, it's not a monolith, everything's a political spectrum that they can try to hold their tents together. It's the challenge of the Republican Party is even though they have that large political spectrum within the Republican Party, uh, can they actually get everyone to get in the same boat and row together? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. most of them row together. Uh, the Democrats, despite our big spectrum, you know, has been able to somehow continue to maintain uh, the majority of Democrats to row together when it comes to big political races. Yeah, it's a lot of it goes back generations and families, I'm sure. And it's you know, it's done because that's how it was always done. Yeah, in Quincy, that's very true. There's uh, you know a lot of families, especially union families, that have uh, three plus generation of Democratic households and. You know, and I remember once when I was in uh, college many months ago, you know, uh, one of my professors uh, talked about the um, importance of the uh, FDR uh, programs in the New Deal and a lot of other reforms they pushed through. I remember one student uh, was clearly like anti-everything, and uh, he was talking, railing about how he destroyed America. And yeah, the professor reminded him that he's a son of a coal miner. <laughs> And uh, things like social security and unionization is the reason he was able to go to school. And his parents enjoyed some level of security uh, in the uh, old age because of the nature of coal mining and, and how tough it is. And, uh, you know, reminded folks that, uh, you know, your privileges you enjoy today uh, came under the backs of other people who did not have the same privilege. Yep. Yeah. It's a, it's a good place to learn that is in college. <laughs> I never forgot that moment. I never forgot that moment. And it's yeah. it, it'd be a reminder to me that, uh, you know, what you got now, you know, was enjoyed by the prior generations. You should be grateful for what you have as opposed to dismantling uh, what we have that made the prior generation great. Um, speaking of government programs, I know we're getting to the end, but um curious about your take on the whole affordable housing issue uh, here in Massachusetts, Jackie, and if, if if there's any role for the state to play in, in, in addressing that. I know the governor has made it, made it a priority during her campaign and hopes to make it a priority in her administration, but what can actually be done? Well, I, you got to really think outside the box in affordable housing. The way affordable housing has gone is really not affordable housing. It continues that under the Republican and the Vol Patrick's administrations, they really just paid it, played into the hands of the developers. 
Yeah. I'm not anti-development, as people know. However, you got to come in and admit this is what's going on. Uh, and that's just the factor that matters. The argument has always been that, you know, housing supply uh, doesn't meet demand, hence the prices are high. Basic economics, very true. However, if you don't create a competitive model for uh, more housing uh, to uh, address, you know, compete against price structure, then obviously there's no incentive to lower the prices. And then you throw on top of that, um, you know, the idea will build a lot more housing to try to meet demand so we can address the housing pricing. Well, I mean, you got to build like 50,000 units in the greater, in the greater Boston area, not just in Boston, in the, in, inside the, you know, the 50-ish, 25, 50-ish mile zone, depending on where in the roadway we're talking about. Right. And uh, you're going to have private development do that. In the interim, all those guys are going to do is charge market rate, try to get to, the, you know, essentially the central number. And you still have no affordable housing. And you can't build that much housing uh, on a private matter, be, private sector, because they're going to have to get those things financed. And they're going to want a return on investment. They're looking for specific targets in return on investment. So, you know, some return on investment can be high as 20 25%. And uh, you got people who, who make money in home flipping. They're no interest in affordable housing. They're trying to get their uh, cut of the action as short as possible. Home flipping is very popular during the zero interest, zero interest rate era. Now the feds are so-called heading for a terminal rate of 5%, which may or may not be true. Uh, the feds are going to announce it till o'clock. So you can talk about it you know, tomorrow morning on listening to Joe Carlano in the morning. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, when, when uh, he comes on. But I mean, the Fed Reserve will announce another rate hike today. And it's going to have ripple effect on people's ability to do um, to do construction. But on a national level, well, housing a person has slowed down. It has far from grinding to a halt, and has not negatively impact housing building on a national level. Um, and then also, there's a financing issue. I mean, depending on how these developers finance, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes they're tied to rent. Uh, some some banks want a guaranteed rent minimum amount despite the low interest rates. Uh, to finance, uh, ensure that the rental income is coming in, which adversely affects the tenants. Yep. So I, I think this is a lot of challenges here. Whether or not the government can take advantage of the higher interest rate to incentivize developers to pay affordable housing, I think things like housing affordable trust fund is great, but you need to use that money to, for something to build affordable housing. Uh, and uh, it doesn't feel fast enough. It's almost like paying a penalty as opposed to actually putting 10% affordable housing in your own development. Uh, I get the uh, idea, but you know, zero interest rate made them flush with cash, mm-hmm. and also private investment because people want a quick turnaround. You want to build this thing in eighteen months and pay out your investors, right? right. People are no longer thinking 10, 15 year return on investment; they're thinking two. Yeah, and and that's what's you know people are thinking. They want these quick turnarounds. I've talked to many people who want to invest in property. They get the first thing out of mind: we want those two year returns. Yeah, two three year returns. They don't want to wait ten years for a return. So, you know, it's interesting uh, problem. And I I mean, you got to think outside the box, but the question is, you know, you got to work with developers at some level, but is there a way for government itself to work without developers to develop housing and whether that government housing should come back, but not in, not in a new way. Kind of a quasi public private partnership, right? And that's been done before. It's not a new concept, uh, but the uh, need for uh, a more modernized version, because this, this is not the 70s, which is the last time they did those things. And we're not talking about the housing authorities. I mean, legit private sector running housing that's government uh, assisted uh, with mandates on affordable housing. That was done in the 70s. OK, it isn't all government run 
But again, you know, the rapid decline of interest rates during the 80s and Greenspan just slashed and burned interest rates to much lower levels, government became less essential on, on development. Right. And the 40B is a failure, as you know, because, you know, someone's uh, got a trigger 40B and, and the municipalities uh, are not as interested now to try to keep under 10%, be, uh, keep above 10% because they want the property taxes. Right. Yeah. It's not it. Like you say, she's going to have a, a challenge on her hands for sure. Yeah, yeah you got to think way outside the box. And I yeah. I think there'll be a housing secretary. I don't know if it's been appointed yet, but I think it's still vacant. But she's going to have to create a new secretary for housing. And you got to really just bite the bullet and take on developers. And, and not in a negative way, but you have to change the relationship and how to do partnerships. I know you're up against the, the clock, but uh, Lunar New Year is coming up here in Quincy on Sunday, right? Yeah, this Sunday, if you guys uh, got some time, you know, definitely swing by the Lunar New Year, North Quincy High School, 11 o'clock start, runs about uh, five hours, and uh, it'll be the first time we've been in person. It attracts about, you know, coming, going during the day, probably five to 10,000 people coming in and out of doors during the course of the day. I'll be there for the opening, you know, I'll do opening wasp. I was actually had the flu again in 2020, so I didn't make that one, but, uh, you know, I'll be... Um, relatively healthy today as you can tell so unless something happens i'll be there for opening remarks and and um you know and people have noticed in, in large crowded areas i've been you know wearing my mask much more often uh i do have some home issues with my mother regarding her medical treatment so you know uh, given the uh fact that you know stuff is still flowing through the air uh you know abundance of caution is still being held by me so again uh people should uh you know be aware of the health as well as the health of their loved ones and make the best decision possible for you and also them. Absolutely. Uh, how do we get a hold of you, Jackie? Well, um, the office is here. <laughs> uh, I'm still in room 42 until the speaker moves me. Um, 617-722-2370. 617-722-2370. You know, we are staffed and we are open. The status is open for visitors. So if you want to run by, I mean, obviously you can come say hello. Uh, tacky.chan at amahouse.gov, T-A-C-K-E-Y.chan at amahouse.gov is the um, uh, email. Obviously, please call an email. Do not social media. Post me on my Twitter account at tacky.chan or Facebook at State Representative Tacky.chan. Please don't do that. Just email or, or call us directly. Um, and actually, uh, when I change the rules, is we're no longer going to be able to stream my public hearings on Facebook. They're going to require us to use the state legislature's website for streaming which I, to be honest with between the two, the Facebook, I think it's much easier for the public, but that's just my opinion. And, um, you know, obviously emmylegislature.gov is the state website and uh, tachychain.org is my private site. And we talked about why we have two websites some time ago and it's, it's, it's government. <laughs> it's called bureaucratic red tape. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a challenge. Uh, <laughs> well, we have no restrictions here on our Tacky Talk podcast. <laughs> Say and do whatever you please. Well, that can get me in trouble. I suspect uh, every time I come on, uh, people are going to be like, you know, what is he doing now? Uh, but, you know, again, we always hope we provide some, you know, insight and information and perspective, perhaps another perspective on how things look. At least, you know, at least try to provide a couple of different perspectives if possible. And, uh, you know, I hope people get to not just uh, enjoy our company, but also maybe learn a thing or two about how things work. Yeah, absolutely. I know I have for sure. So I appreciate that, Techie. And um, I wish you a happy Lunar New Year and uh, check in next week. Well, Sunny Fellow, go ahead, Fat Choi. We'll be, uh, you know, uh, Year of the Rapids started a little while, but we're celebrating on Sunday. <laughs>